you all. Appreciate that. And congratulations, Michael and Sydney. That is wonderful news. And Jeff as well. I wasn't sure how public I could be about all those, but I just want to say congratulations around the board. That's wonderful. All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. If you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. It's going to be on the screens beside me. Uh, we are working our way through this Gospel, and what we're finding here for uh, the Gospel of Luke, we're on the heels of the parable of the uh, widow, persistent widow, and today we're moving into what is probably the most well-known parable that Jesus ever preached. And so because it is so well known, sometimes things are overlooked in this. And so I want us to kind of take our time today and look at this. And uh, also in, in this, I want us to see, um, I want us to see Jesus' heart for children. Because we're going to see that towards the tail end. And I, I have preached this before from the pulpit and I will preach this to the day I die. Wherever I pastor, wherever I am, we should make it easy for children to get to Jesus. We should make that easy and simple. Uh, so we're going to do that as much as is possible here at Grace Baptist Church as long as I'm pastor here anyhow. All right, let's, uh, let's look at this passage together. Luke 18, 9 through 17. Hear the word of God. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when, he, when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them and to them and said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers, the flowers, flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. Okay, let's rewind the tape here. Now, this is one of those parables where you learn the point of the parable before you get the parable. This only happens about three times in all of Jesus's parables that he gives. We're sort of winding down on parables here in Luke. For some of you, that's good news. For some of you, you're sad. I'm not sure which way, which way you are, but either way, there's much to glean from this. Uh, what do we see right out of the bat here? Because I, I don't want you to, as I preach through this text, I don't want you to think, Pastor, you're reading into that an awful lot. Look, look here at the first verse right out of the gate that we're looking at here. He also told this parable to some who trusted, what's it say, church? In themselves. So this is going to be a parable where we're going to be dealing with self-righteousness. Okay. Now I want you to notice something else. Self-righteousness is always connected to something. It's like a truck and a trailer, okay? So if the truck is self-righteousness, here's the trailer. And treated others with what? Contempt. So a self-righteous person 
always treats other people with contempt. That's what Jesus is hitching them together and saying. Let me see if I can illustrate this in my life. All right, now this is a slide not against my wife. This is a slide against me and my self-righteousness, okay? So when I tell you this, don't walk away from here saying, boy, pastor really beat up on his wife today because that's not what the point of this illustration is. Pastor's trying to beat up on the pastor this morning, all right? So let me say the following. My wife does a thousand things, 10,000 things to keep our household running. She has everything organized. She's so well organized. Like I think even her junk drawers are organized, okay? She keeps the kids at school running, firing on all cylinders. I rarely have to help. When I do help, it's minimal. She takes care of all of that. Uh, She makes sure that everything is handled on the home front. My wife is truly a Proverbs 31 woman, okay? I mean every word of that, 100% of that. I love her dearly, and she's amazing. She's a blessing for me to have. The Bible tells us if you find a godly woman, you found a good thing. I have found a good thing, okay? So I could go on for longer, but I'll stop there for now. All right. When we were first married, and, and sometimes I feel this well up even now, uh, here's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness makes you forget all the thousands of good things in others, and you just hone in on one little dumb thing, all right? So let me tell you what the one little dumb thing I hone in on is, okay? It's the shower drain. Every husband in here, you're snickering because you know, right? If you know, you know. Don't worry, Michael, I'm going to give you, a to- uh, 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 give you a tool that will help you with this in the future. Okay, you'll thank me for it later. So it's not that hard. I want to do it. It's not that hard to just go like this because there's a lot more hair, you know. When you're a young guy single, you don't have to deal with it. Just take it like this and right there in the trash can, right by the, and uh, just doesn't make it. And I'd be like unclogging that thing and uh, be like, I just don't understand, you know, and and what is the issue there? It's like it's not like I don't leave my shoes everywhere in the house, or I don't take off my socks by the recliner and like tuck them down somewhere where she can't find them. Or the list goes on and on for me. Okay, it's worse for me, right? And I, I'm yet to get a full outfit in a laundry hamper after 17 years. Now, I've got half of it in there, okay? But she's not got me fully trained yet, ladies. So bear with me. My point is this, you know, who am I? You know, I've been blessed beyond blessed to have a wife like Becky to sit in my heart internally and nag about something as minute and stupid as a clogged drain in the shower. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of men in this church that are widowed. There's several men that are widowed. They'd unclog a thousand drains if they could have their wives back for one day. They would do it, right? So don't you worry about it, Becky. If you're watching this, which she might be, I don't know. She's probably asleep because she had a rough night. She's sick. Don't you worry about that hair. I'll take care of it to the day we die. You know what I mean? It's not a big deal. Not a big deal. But that contempt, right? You know, when we first got married, I don't think they do this anymore. But when Beck and I got married 17, 18 years ago, I used to put a picture of you there, and then everybody would sign this, like, matting around the picture. Have you all ever been to a wedding with that? And I remember somebody signed mine, and it said, Remember, marriage is 50-50. And I wanted to take out my seminary red pen and mark that out and say, no, no, you misunderstand what marriage is, right? Here's what happens. If what Jesus is saying is correct, which we all believe that what Jesus says is correct, right? (laughs) If what he's saying is correct, uh, what we're going to be tempted to do is this. We're going to be tempted to do things like the following. Read this passage in Luke chapter 18. And who do you automatically identify with? You automatically identify with the humble person, don't you? Then, well, I'm the humble one, right? 
which kind of undermines the whole thing, right? <laughs> you're, you're blind to your own pharisaicalism in doing so. Uh, what, what, what we're doing here is we're undermining that. We're, we need to realize where we really struggle with this in our own lives. That's what this is about today, right? So let's, let's dive into this a little more, see if we can see this. All right, first of all, this is, this is a clearly a parable that's in twos, right? You know, like I've told you so many times, usually when there's multiple characters like this, you got somebody who's a scoundrel and somebody who's not a scoundrel. It's confusing in this one though, right? Let me see if I can help you out. In, verse, in chapter 18 here, there is a perceived righteous man. And who is that perceived righteous man? The one that seems righteous to the hearers in the first century is going to be the Pharisee. Now, let me give you a little background on them. Pharisees are part of a 500-year-old movement to go back to the Torah and be as faithful as possible. They are viewed as the upper echelon and the cream of the cream of the laity of their day. These are men who uh, have gone back, they have looked at the Old Testament law, and they have seen that it calls for a tithe, which by definition, tithe means what? It's 10. 10%, right? And they said, you know what? The law calls for 10, we're going to do 20. So the Pharisees would give 20%. They would be fair in their dealings and their business practices. And they would come and they would pray, they would pray multiple times a day, usually at least three. Nine o'clock, there would be sacrifices giving. Three o'clock, they'd be praying then. And usually at, in the evenings at another time, be continue prayer life. Now, I'm just going to tell you the truth. For a pastor, that sounds pretty good. You know, if every church member that I had gave 20% of everything they had, uh, I'm probably listing these in poor order, but had a, had a faithful prayer life. Let me put that one first. Just let's move the, the tithe thing to the end. I had a faithful prayer life to the Lord first, studied the Word deeply, and, uh, you know, was always there when the doors were open for the church and gave 20%. Man, about every pastor I know would line up to have parishioners like that. That would be great to have church members like that. And, uh, you know, that would be wonderful. And that's kind of how they were viewed and seen by the other one. That's just why it's so mind-blowing when Jesus makes comments like, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. That's strange you would say something like that, right? Because that's a lot to do. To be quite honest, I don't know that I live up to those measurements, and I'm a pastor of a church, right? So you can imagine what the, what the people of the day heard when he said that. So he is perceived as righteous, but he has a problem, right? We'll get to that in a minute. Now let me deal with the other, who is the perceived unrighteous one, and that is the, ta- the tax collector, okay? Now, let me see if I can frame this in your head correctly. This parable is almost like a cartoon because the, the sharp distance between the two people on the social ladder, okay? Um, tax collectors of the day, they were, Israel was occupied by whom? Do you remember? It's Rome, right? Rome of the day. Rome would say, we're going to take this section of Jerusalem and we're going to put a contract out. We're going to ask people that live here in Jerusalem, the Jews of the day, to put out a bid and you're going to collect X amount of taxes Whatever you can get past that from your fellow countrymen, you can pocket it, okay? So there was a lot of extortion that went on. You know, a lot of times your more rich guys would buy several of these provinces, and then they would hire these other 
you know, lower in uh, boots on the ground guys to collect the taxes. So they would have to pay a, a percentage to the richer Jews that had bought a particular area to collect taxes on. And then they would have to, those guys have to go on and pay Rome. But whatever you could get past what was required, you got to pocket. In fact, they were known to be people that extorted you know, that, that held money and took money where they shouldn't have to, to threaten to turn you into the Romans. Remember, the Romans, those are the people who came in. They are pagans who follow uh, foreign gods. They are people who, it, for those Jews that have tried to, to do an uprising and break free from the Roman suppression, they take them and they do something really nasty to them called crucify them. And the Romans were the best at that, weren't they? They had like perfected it to a science because they had done it so much. And they were just flat out hated by the Jews of the day. So you have fellow countrymen who are supposed to be faithful to God who are working for these dirty, stinking, pagan overlords. How do you think the people in Israel felt about them? Not real happy. Not real friendly, right? Uh, In fact, I would almost say this. I don't know what would have been worse for a Jewish family in the first century to say. My daughter is a prostitute or my son is a tax collector for Rome. They would have been neck and neck. They would have been neck and neck, okay? So the contrast is sharp between the two characters that is here. So to the hearers of this, everybody's going to read this, and they're going to say, well, the Pharisee is clearly what? He's righteous, isn't he? And the tax collector is clearly what? Unrighteous, isn't he? But, beloved, things are not what they appear to be, right? They're not always what they appear to be. All right. Let's look at a couple of things here with this. You know, one of the things we're learning about this, you know, just like in the last section in the parable, we get things wrong about God. We get things wrong about God because of the way we think. We get things wrong about God because of modern philosophy, human philosophy and reasoning, and we listen to that too much. Or we get things wrong about God because of tradition we've been handed. And what Jesus is doing is he's knocking those things down with these parables. He's saying, you don't need to misunderstand God. This is what the Lord is like. This is what I am like. You know, for the Pharisee, what we're going to see here is a standoffness, right? Let's look at this. Uh, I want you to notice first this. Look at the two postures of the men in this parable. Two of them go up to the temple. Let me just say this. You always go up to Jerusalem, no matter where you live in Israel, even if geographically you live at a higher altitude. It's kind of like all you that live on Stony Creek, right? You're never going up to Elizabethan. You're always going what? Down to Elizabethan, right? <laughs> going down the river to Elizabethan. I made that mistake one time in Stony Creek, and I about got, I about got rocks thrown at me, literal stones thrown at me, right? That's the closest to being stoned I've ever been as a pastor was when I said that in Stony Creek. I thought that was funny. Maybe that hit some of you later. Anyway, so you go up to Jerusalem, and the way the temple sets, you just kind of a climb to get up in there, right? Uh, we see here the Pharisee and one the tax collector. Move on to verse 11 here. The Pharisee, notice his posture. Where is he? Where is he? Is he with the group? He's standing by what? Why? Why would a Pharisee stand by himself? I don't know what you had for breakfast. Yeah, I don't know what you ate for breakfast. You could have had catfish for breakfast. We all know that's unclean in Leviticus. I'm not going to touch you because your disobedience to Leviticus will transfer to me 
don't touch me, right? I, I don't know what you did on the way to, to worship today. For all I know, you could have touched a dead bird or a dead animal, either by accident or on purpose, depending if you have that kind of exploratory weird nature, right? So I don't want you touching me. I'm standing right here by the bench. Priests are here giving my offering. I'm praying to heaven. Don't come near me, right? What's the misunderstanding and mistake the Pharisee makes there? While God is holy and God is pure and no sin can dwell in him or with him, he still draws and seeks sinners, doesn't he? Isn't that what he did when he came in Jesus Christ? What the Pharisee fails to see is God's heart in redemption and salvation and is more fixated on just being on a checklist and getting things right to be accepted. Now, where do you see the tax collector standing? Where is he standing? Scam your scriptures there. Where does he say he's standing? Is he up at the rail where the priests are? No, he's not. He's afar off. He's in the back, right? For all you people sitting in the back today where the tax collectors sit, right? <laughs> in the back pew, right? I've asked Pabdis for years, why do you sit in the back? Pastor, I have a weak bladder. I have to get to the bathroom quickly. Or you've got an escape plan in case things go sideways. I understand what the real issue is. I like the cover with the bladder, though. That was good. But you've got a backup plan in case this gets weird, right? You can get out of here. I get it. Not so with the fair, not so with the tax collector here. He's not in the back because he's wanting an escape route or because he needs to empty his bladder quickly. He's in the back because he understands his place. Not just in society, that he is hated among his fellow countrymen. He understands his place before a holy God. Now notice this. What is their posture in prayer? We see the, the, we see the Pharisee. Pharisee lifts his hands up. And he looks up to pray, right? This is his position. This is not an uncommon position that people would take in prayer in the Old Testament. I think we see Elijah and some of the others recorded taking this sort of position, eyes lifted up to heaven, uh, speaking with him. Not, not an uncommon one with the prophets in particular, right? So not, would not have been foreign to them. What is the position of prayer for the tax collector? What is it? It's down, isn't it? He won't look up. Why? You know, I don't know if you realize this or not, but this parable has influenced your posture and how you pray every day. Why do you bow your head and close your eyes? You ever ask that question? Because you're not worthy to look upon the holy. And this tax collector knows he's not worthy to look on the holy. So what's he do? He looks down, he closes his eyes. He's not going to lift his head up. He knows he has no foot to stand on, on his own. He knows his position before the Lord. He knows his position in society. Now, their postures, the persons, now let's examine the prayers, perhaps the most condemning of all, right? It's through prayer we find out what people are really like. But the tax collector stood far off. Let's, let's back up and look at the prayer here of the Pharisee. Pharisee says, look, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, Adulterers are even like this tax collector. <laughs> it makes you feel good, doesn't it, when you come in to pray. Thank you, you didn't make me like Zach Dalton, God, right? 
Thank you, you didn't make me like, you know, fill in the blank. I'm just being silly. But anyhow, you get the point. There is a self-righteousness that, that permeates this prayer. And it's a pungent smell, isn't it? It's a disgusting smell, isn't it? Don't you think it is? As you're, as you're listening to this, as we're hearing this, what's he saying? Thank you, I'm not like other men. Now, for us, it sticks out really bad. But now to the first century hearers, it was not uncommon to hear Jews pray, Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for setting us aside. Thank you we don't worship the pagan gods of the Romans. It was not uncommon for that kind of prayer. And so even in hearing that prayer, they may not have been totally taken off guard by it, but I think somewhat, especially by the last part here. What does this prayer really consist of, right? This prayer really consists of what? Look at me, look at me, look at me. I give twice a week. By the way, did I tell you about their fasting? I can't remember. Did I say anything about the fasting in this one? You know, in fasting, they, they had to do during the, ses- the festivals or during times of duress or stress, they would do times of fasting as a nation. They would, the Pharisees, though, they wanted, remember what I said about the tithe thing? They wanted to go next level. The next level for them, they would fast twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. That was their days. They'd fast twice a week. Lord, I fast twice a week. Look at me, look at me, look at me. God, you're so lucky to have me on your team. His religion blinds him to his great flaw. And what is his great flaw? His greatest flaw, which is a damnable flaw, which will get him condemned for eternity, is that he trusts in himself and his own righteousness. Right? He has forgotten Ezekiel 33, 12. Flip in your Bibles with me for just a minute. Remember what the great prophet of all warned us about. Remember what he said? This is not a new concept Jesus is teaching. This is an old concept. It's just been forgotten in a sea of morality and in a sea of checklists. Here is what he says in Ezekiel 33, 12. And you, son of man, say to your people, listen closely, church, listen. The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness and the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Ezekiel says something that Jesus is saying here. His righteousness is short. It will not save him from his sins. His checklist of right things will fall short on judgment day and he doesn't even realize it. He's so puffed up with pride he can't even see it. Can I submit something to you this morning? How often do you think of unchurched people and lost people in our community? Do you think about them? Do you pray for them? Do you know what turns lost people off quicker to church than anything? Is religious Pharisees. It turns them off quicker than anything. And here's the brutality of this text and the reality of this parable. Most Pharisees, as they pray and as they live and as they think of themselves more highly than they ought and more important than they ought, don't see how that's really the smell of death and rot to those who are far from the Lord. They don't see it and they don't smell it. You say, Pastor, how could they not see it and how could they not smell it? Think about your own nose. Your nose is sitting right in front of it, right above your mouth. 
But can you smell your own bad breath? Can you? You can't smell it, can you? But I tell you what, everybody else around you can. Those that are outside the Christian faith, when they smell self-righteousness on a, on a Pharisee, they can smell it a mile away. I would submit to you today that it is religious people, moral people, who put unchurched off more than anyone else. All right, now, the prayer of the tax collector. We went through this. He fasts twice a week, gives tithes and all. What, what is the prayer of the tax collector here? What does he say? The tax collector stands off, not even lift up his eyes to heaven, beats his breast, right? It's a sign of... Just about broke my mic there. It's a sign of... Uh, forgot I was wearing it there. Uh, it's a sign of uh, humility. It's a sign of, um, of completely being undone. And what's he say here? God, be what? Be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, merciful. What does it mean to have mercy, right? To show pity. Sometimes we think of it that way, to show pity to someone who doesn't deserve it. That might be true. That is partially true here. It's the same Greek word that we see in 1 John to talk about propitiation, which is atonement to satisfy a deity, uh, to be accepted by a deity by an atonement that is given. No doubt his prayer is not saturated with self-righteousness. It does not waft in the nostrils of the Lord with self-righteousness, but rather his prayer is offered up with the incense of what? Of humility, isn't it? It's beautiful and it's simple. Now, be merciful to me. I don't know why the ESV and every English translation does this. You can't see this in English. You can see it in Greek. It has to do with uh, uh, the article that sits in front of it. It should actually read, God be merciful to me, the sinner. But that's weird in English. But it's not that weird, right? We got an Ohio State fan sitting in here today. Every time they're on Monday Night Football, right? What do they always say? What do the players say on Monday Night Football? Graduated from what? The Ohio State. What's that mean? Right? They mean it, the premier above all others, right? That's what, isn't that right? Come on, be honest. That's what they mean, isn't it? That's what that little definite article means. We all know down here in the South what they mean, right? The Ohio State. Everybody that's not an Ohio State fan on Monday Night Football rolls their eyes whenever they hear that. You know what I mean? The Ohio State. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, in a similar regard here, that article's true and it should read the sinner. What's he saying? I'm, I've surveyed this town. I've surveyed this country. And of these people that I know, I'm the worst. I'm the one. I'm the sinner of sinners. Sounds a bit like Paul, doesn't it? When Paul said what? I'm the chief among what? Sinners, right? This is the kind of prayers God answers. This is the kind of prayers God accepts sinners in brokenness, understanding who they really are and that we have no leg to stand on before the Lord. All right, verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who exalts himself, or everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember when Jesus was born and the family took him to the temple and an old man that's been waiting in the temple, God made him a promise. Simeon was made a promise. They said, you will not die. You won't taste death until you see the promised Messiah come. 
And then Jesus comes into the temple and he gets to look and behold him. And I think about that every time I read verse 14 here. Because what does Simeon say? Behold, my eyes have seen salvation. You will be the cause of many who will rise in Israel and what? Fall. Many will fall in Israel. Who will be rising in Israel? The humble. The wicked who repent. The broken before God. And who will fall? The unrighteous Pharisee who thinks he's righteous but can't detect that. Finally this. This last little section here. I'm going to move through this quickly. Verse 15. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And the disciples saw them and they rebuked them. Hey, keep those snotty-nosed kids away from Jesus. We all know what Jesus can do. He can heal the broken. He can mend the eyes that are blind. He can do anything. He can walk on water. We don't need these kids rubbing their snot all over Jesus. Keep them away. We all know kids are meant to be seen and not heard. Right? You ever heard people saying that? Meant to be seen and not heard. I just want to smack them when, I'm, when I meet people like that. I mean, Nehemiah did it. It's got to be okay, right? Social media is the problem now, isn't it? Can't get away with things like that now. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I remember one time, this is a true story. Kid in the other service when I first got here, there was a guy, he's dead now, so I can talk about this now, but he was, he was pretty, pretty regular on the other side. Kid was, was just being a kid in the pew in front of him. He took his finger, wound it up, popped that kid right in the ear during worship service. True story. It's one of the reasons we plant this service down here so your kids don't get flipped in the ear by people. <laughs> That's a true story. Right? We, we need to tear down any barriers. We need to tear down any barriers that prevent children from seeing Jesus. Right? We need to be patient with them. You know, as a pastor, I have the joy and the privilege to sit down and talk to people's kids. They bring me their kids to talk to them about salvation, about the gospel, about baptism. We had two kids baptized this morning. And uh, I, I want to say sometimes we've got to be careful because kids are making steps towards Jesus, right? So they see their parents, you know, parents, you know, let your kids catch you being faithful to the Lord. Let them catch you writing a check to the church. Let them catch you praying to the Lord. Let them catch you reading Scripture. Let them ask you what you're doing. Let them see that. They need to see that, right? Let them read Scripture in a service. Let them read Scripture on Easter, right? Let them do these things. Uh, do everything we can to make it easy for them to get to Jesus. Because he tells us here why. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to him, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. By the way, there's curses for those who hinder little ones that come to Jesus. Something about a millstone and being tossed into the ocean. I don't think we want to be part of that. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Verse 17. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I'm so glad for verse 17. Aren't you glad Scripture says you've got to become like a child to enter the kingdom of God? And it doesn't say children need to become like adults to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> um, you know, I do a lot of baptisms. And I don't know if you've ever done this before. Maybe you've done this in, in like a fun summertime setting, but not in a baptism setting. But there is something fundamentally wired in our brains that when someone is pushing us underwater, we fight back. I don't know if you know this or not, but we just kind of do that it's a reflex and of all the people i baptized through all the years all of them fight me a little bit like so i have to kind of work out that week i'm doing baptism make sure i can get them under all the way right uh except three there were three baptisms i did they never fought back with me you know who those three were they were my children you know why 
because they fully and completely trusted that if I put them under that water, I was going to bring them right back up. They had no question, even at a reflex level, that their father was to be trusted and he was okay to go underwater with him. It's the same thing here in this text, right? Do you trust God? Like you trust your grandparent when you were a kid to jump off the side of the pool, they're going to catch you, right? Do you trust him like a, like a pastor's kid who's being laid back in the water? My daddy's going to pull me back up. No matter how long and I feel like I'm running out of air, he's going to pull me back up. Do you believe that? That's the call in this passage here. Have you trusted this way? Have you humbled yourself? Have you sought the Lord as this tax collector this morning? If you haven't, I'd love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. How good and how right it is. Thank you for the blessing that it is to, to know you. Lord, we, we know that without the cross, without the suffering, there would be no way. We thank you that all these misunderstandings we have about you, that, Lord, um, you are not a God who recoils away from your children, but one who draws near. That You have promised that a bruised reed you will not crush. That you have promised us that you would be with us to the end of the age. That you are not removed, but you are here with us in our midst. Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not know you, they've never trusted you like we've talked about this morning, won't you, won't you draw them to yourself today? Won't you save them, Lord? God, help us all as we, as we stand here before you today, knowing that a future day is coming when we will stand before you and give a final account. Lord, may we all be humbled now so that we would not be humbled then. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Moving into a time of response. We're going to sing in response. The truth has been proclaimed to you today. You have heard the gospel clearly. Won't you respond? Won't you turn to Christ today? He is your only hope for salvation. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your philosophies. Don't trust your traditions. Trust Christ. Won't you do that as we sing? I'll be in the back to receive you.